only five chapters, but we may be in Galatians the rest of the year. <laughs> but that's okay. Galatians is a really, really good book. If you've never had the chance to read it, take an afternoon and read it. It's really good. In just two little verses, what we're going to talk about today is the consequences of trusting the law. There's entire offshoots of Christianity now where they've decided that you've got to be a Christian and you've got to keep the entire law of Moses or, and everything in between. And, of course, the original religion and a few offshoots of that that are saying you have to keep the law of Moses. But we know as Christians that's not exactly what the Bible has to say. There are many very big important things throughout the law of Moses that translate right over into Christianity. But having two things be similar does not make them the same. You can have a red Pinto and a red Ferrari, and if you're in a race, you don't want to pick the Pinto just because they're the same color. It just isn't how it works. And religion is the same way. The Torah is contained within our Bible, but just because it's a part of our Bible does not mean it's our binding covenant. The Lord put it there for other reasons. It's still relevant, just not as our binding covenant. Galatians 5, 2-4 through 4 says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Now, I wouldn't get too hung up on his wording in verse 2, because that's a common medical practice nowadays, but not a single person who had that done was done on the eighth day, because the law of Moses told your parents to get a sharp knife and go do it. It was done for other reasons. But that's not the same. What we're talking about in these verses is a matter of whether or not you're following the law. To be of the circumcised or of the uncircumcised back in their day was a quick way to signify whether or not you were a classic Jew or you were from somebody else. So you have the churches of Galatia who are being troubled by those who taught a Christian needed to keep the law of Moses. Christianity come up. The Pharisees and Sadducees figured out it wasn't going away. So what's the next best thing to do if you can't squash it? Okay, well, we'll just bring our own doctrine into it and try to work them back the other way. And in Galatia, this was a bit of an issue. Paul had to write him a letter and talk about it. They were telling him that men had to be circumcised as commanded by the law. And this was a problem that plagued many churches in the beginning. And that was one example of things that were there, but there were parts of the law that may have confused, were troubled or frightened them for any number of reasons. But at the end of the day, none of that mattered because that wasn't the doctrine that they were supposed to be following. Acts 15, 1-5 says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain of others of them should go to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phineas and Samaria, declaring the conversation of the Gentiles, and they ceased great they caused great joy unto the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them, but there rose up a Certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believe, saying that it is needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And another little section of powerful verses, you have an example of all kinds of things. They had a question they weren't 100% on, so they went to talk to more Christians about it. In this case, Peter and them weren't that far off. And along the way, 
There's more churches. Let's fellowship and rejoice together. Things that we should be doing whenever we get the chance. But if you have a biblical issue and you can't figure it out, talk to brother or sister in the church, talk to the eldership, talk to the preacher. And it doesn't have to just be our congregation. Any Bible-believing congregation will have folks to talk to. And on that same note, they'll have plenty of people to rejoice with. So, so that's what they've done here, though. They couldn't get to a final agreement with everybody that, hey, no, these people are wrong. We're not under the law of Moses. So Paul then said, okay, how about if I go and we talk to the apostles? If Peter agrees, will you agree? And, well, okay, yeah, if Peter agrees, we'll go with it. <clears throat> so Paul makes his way up there, and he presents powerful arguments in defense of the gospel. He has his own personal argument. We've read all these verses over the last few weeks, so I'm not going to read all of them today. But in Galatians 3, 1 through 5, he goes through his personal argument where he talks about his encounter with Christ. And everybody knew that he just basically flipped overnight from let's kill all Christians to, hey, everybody, let me tell you about Jesus. Without even knowing the gap in the middle about how Christ came to him on the road to Damascus, just knowing he flipped overnight that dramatically should be enough to make anybody stop and say, I need to know more. But that's not good enough because our personal argument is not scripture, so Paul has a scriptural argument. Galatians 3, 6 through 25, almost 20 verses where he goes to and says, hey, look, the scripture backs this up. My argument's great, but it's not scripture. Here's your scripture. And he goes through almost 20 verses of, hey, this is what the scripture has to say. Well, that doesn't sway everybody. Maybe you don't believe in Scripture just yet, but you're a practical individual. So in Galatians 3, 26 through 4, 7, he goes to it and says, okay, well, maybe you're not Scripture, but let's talk about the practicality of this. The fact of the matter is, there's only one way to become a son and an heir of God, and that's through Christ, and here's all the practical reasons why. Well, everybody's swayed a little bit different, and Paul's very thorough, so he has a sentimental argument as well appealing to their relationship with Paul. Hey, you guys know me. You've known me for a long time. Hey, you Pharisees, we've hung out together. Seriously, if you won't consider all this thing, all these things that make sense, think about our friendship. Would I lie to you, really? I'm telling you, Christ is the way. So, and then he goes on to an allegorical argument. So think about Hagar and Sarah. Think about this for a minute. We talked about them two weeks ago. You have... Basically, two separate covenants. They weren't outlined as covenants, but you have this child and this child, and what was promised to them, and how it all went down. Okay, now thinking about them, let's say that this one represents Christianity, and this one represents your other option. Seriously, think about it. Which child would you rather be? Uh, Sarah's child or Hagar's child? And having going through and covered all of his bases, he thoroughly goes through the idea that, hey, if Christ wanted us to follow the law of Moses, he would have said follow the law of Moses. That's not what he told us. So Paul sought to reason with his brethren in the church of Galatia and convince them that you follow the gospel of Christ, nothing more, nothing less. And no matter how your thought process worked, he tried his very best to be thorough and cover every type of form of arguing that he could find. Whether you were a logical person or straight scriptural or, hey, you're my friend or whatever the case may be, he wanted to make sure to outline to you in chapters 3 and first part of 4 that, hey, no matter how you want to slice this, we belong to Jesus Christ. Why don't we just follow him? Don't stop reading your scripture. They're important. But just know, you don't have to follow the law of Moses if you're following the law of Christ. Then the apostolic authority come along. That was uh, in our verses in 2 through 4. And Paul testifies to the consequences of trusting the law. 
and the consequences are grave and should be considered serious by every Christian. For one thing, you will not profit from Christ. You, you can't profit from Christ if you think the law of Moses is saving you. A very modern idea that I could give you is if you get a really good job offer in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and you get another really good job offer in Texas, and neither one of them are over the phone or over the internet jobs or jobs you have to go punch a time clock at, you can't collect a check from both jobs. And if you find a way to do that for a little while, you'll probably get some kind of legal trouble for embezzlement, so it still won't work out. You can't be in both places at once. The physical comparison uh, outlines this very well. If you try to take both jobs, you can't profit from both, and odds are you'll lose them both. It's not going to work. And that's the difference in the profiting from Christ or profiting from the law of Moses. You could try to follow both, but at the end of the day, they're going to cancel each other out because you can't be a Christian and follow the law of Moses because you're going to be so busy trying to sacrifice animals, you're not going to be a good Christian. So our scripture says that if you're trying to follow the law, you will not profit from Christ. This should be understood in its context. Paul did not condemn particular things such as circumcision in and of itself. Because that act, if done for, like we do it now, for medical reasons, for health reasons, is just a cleaner, healthier way to be. So because it was done for a different reason, it has nothing to do with this. But if you did it because you read in the Law of Moses, this should be done on the eighth day, and blah, 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 and you're doing it because you're trying to follow the law, it's bad. It's just like celebrating holidays with your families are not bad, but if you're celebrating them as a feast for some other religion that's not Christianity then that same idea becomes bad, because instead of just enjoying your family, now you've made it a religious thing. Intent can change the outcome of many things, both in and out of religion, and this is no different. Paul didn't condemn specific acts. Acts 16.3 says, him, would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews, which were in those quarters, for they all knew his father was a Greek. Now, Paul took this particular person and did it not because Christ expected it to be done, but because it made the evangelism work that was being done easier. He didn't do it to follow the law of Moses. He did it because that gave the guy an in with this crowd so that they would actually talk to him. Okay, so I know you were born a Greek, your dad's a Greek, but I can see here that you, you're one of us, kind of, so we can talk, we can be friends. Okay, well, now that we can be friends, now I can minister to you about the gospel. So it wasn't that he's saying when he uses this phrase like we covered at the beginning, circumcision as the act itself so much as the act in connection to the Old Covenant. <coughs> and there are many things throughout the Old Covenant that goes that way. The fact is that he opposed it when done with the idea that it was necessary for justification. We didn't, if we do it today, it's not for justification, it's for a different reason. Galatians 2, 3-5 through 5 says, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that is because a false brother unawares brought in who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us unto bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that in the truth of the gospel might continue with you. And we don't even got to go into what their particular ideals were in bringing this in, but the fact of the matter is false doctrine is false doctrine. Going to a group of Christians and saying, You've got to go in and have surgery to be a Christian. Not only is it false doctrine, but if they go through and they do it, then they're trying to buy their salvation through something that won't get it. And if they say, well, apparently Christianity's not for me, and they walk away and they die in their sins, 
you have just used false doctrine to run somebody away from Christ, so there's really no good outcome to bleeding false doctrine into the true doctrine. Which goes back to what we had said a moment ago, Christ will profit you nothing. If you're trying to get your salvation through anything other than Christ in his perfect plan, Christ will profit you nothing. That ought to be a terrifying thought if you've ever heard and understood the gospel. Because once you understand the gospel, until you respond to that gospel, you're going straight to hell. And so that if you understand that gospel, if you try to find a workaround or a wormhole or a loophole or this looks easier, I'll try it instead, it doesn't matter. Christ will profit you nothing. Christ said you do this, 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 and this. You can't bypass one. You can't a la carte the buffet. You can't slide your vegetables under the table to the dog. You've got to do what Christ said the way he said, no more, no less. The fact of the matter is, forgiveness of sins is through the blood of Christ, and that's it. Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The gift of the Spirit and the guarantee of the inheritance. Ephesians 1.13 and 14 says, In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession into the praise of his glory. We know that the greatness of God's power is for those who believe. Well, how does he know you believe? Well, because if you believe, you'll listen to him. We talked about translation before. The opposite of belief in the original language is disobedience. So if you believe God, you're going to obey him. If you don't obey him, you must not believe him. Ephesians 1.19, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Well, that would be the privilege of being fellow citizens and members of God's family. You don't just get to hang out with Christ when you're a Christian. You get adopted into the family. They use the example in different parts of Scripture of grafting a tree. You can take an apple tree and a pear tree, and if you know what you're doing, you can take a branch off one and make it live on the other and get two fruits off one tree. And that's the concept of if you find out about a kid that doesn't have a family and you're not a bad person, you can go to the courthouse and do a little bit of this and that, and you can make that person a part of your family. And even if they look different, it doesn't matter because that person is a part of your family. And becoming a Christian doesn't just mean that, oh, well, you belong to me now, because you do belong to Christ, but he says you are family. You are grafted in. You are one of the family. Ephesians 1, uh, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. It says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God. And are built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Another one of them analogies. You build a building, it's got to be built the right way. You can't just kind of jam pieces everywhere unless you'd like it to land on your head one day. And as we become a family, we're bit, put together by the master builder to form this holy temple to the Lord. That doesn't need walls or a ceiling, because God had a more perfect plan as usual. Indeed, all blessings that Jesus offers will only benefit you if you've done it his way, not if you follow the law of Moses or anything else. 
Not only will Christ not profit any who are circumcised, or in other words, who follow the other law, in order to be saved, but you will be indebted to the whole law. That was the biggest flaw in the law. You had to keep the whole thing. You messed up on one jot or one tittle and you lost it. Every man who becomes circumcised or a follower of the law of Moses, and again, this should be understood in its context, Paul makes it clear that the consequence affects everyone, not just to you if you become circumcised, but to every man. Every man who becomes grafted into the law through this form of justification. Paul makes it clear that he writes with great solemnity. He already wrote, Indeed, I, Paul, back in Galatians 5.2. Behold, I, Paul, unto you, that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. There's only one form of justification. If you try a different form, they cancel each other out. Now he adds, and I testify again in verse 3, for I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to the whole law. So now you've canceled out Christ for your justification. What are you going to do? Well, you've got to keep the entire law perfectly, in its entirety. Because without Christ, that's the only other possible option. And guess what? It's not going to work. Paul's testaments are to be taken seriously, for they are in the form of an oath. He is a debtor to keep the whole law, is what Paul tells you. If you do this, you bind yourself to obey the law of Moses, which placed under an insupportable, which puts you under an unsupportable yoke, or in other words, a task you can't complete. Acts 15.10, Now therefore, why tempt ye God? to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Somebody's contesting some conduct of the disciples and Christ is saying, look, they're not going to be able to do it just like you couldn't do it, just like the ancestors couldn't do it. The law put those who did not obey it under a curse. Galatians 3.10, For as many as are under the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Those who stumble in just one point are guilty of all. James 2, 10 and 11. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. You didn't, you didn't break this part of the law over here, but you broke another part, so guess what? You still broke the law. The blood of bulls and goats was inadequate. Animal sacrifice was never enough to get us to heaven. Hebrews 10, 1-4, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offer year by year continually, make the comers there too perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worship worshippers once purged should have had no more <coughs> consequence of sin, but in those sacrifices there is... A remembrance, again, made of sin every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. They were just tidying us over until we could get the ultimate sacrifice. Such a person has truly become entangled with the yoke of bondage. Galatians 5.1 Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You've made it out of the law of Moses. You've gotten into something you can actually be capable of. Don't go back to the apostle, just follow Christ. The apostle continues to describe their consequence of trusting in the law for their salvation. And he goes on to tell them how estranged from Christ they'll be. You who attempt to be justified by the law, he's speaking to. Those seeking salvation on the basis of keeping the law of Moses will be estranged from Christ. 
This is an effort on the part of many in Israel. Well, we'll just keep this law because the Messiah hasn't come yet. I'm sorry, but he has. Not just those who were Jewish Christians, but those who were also Jewish Jews. Acts 15, 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. 15.5 But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. But And not just those group, but also Israelites who did not believe in Christ. Because they did have their covenant with Christ, but the fact was there was a better deal coming. Romans 9.31 and 32 But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling block. And also verse 10, 1-4, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer of God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone that believeth. He goes on and on and on to get the point across that you can never be justified by things that you can do in keeping the laws in that category. This would apply to anyone who seeks to be saved through the law of Moses, no matter what your religious background. If you're going to keep the law of Moses for your salvation, then you become estranged from Christ. That is expressed by various translations. ESB and NAB say severed from Christ. The NIV would say alienated from Christ. And RSV would be to have yourself cut off from Christ. And of course the KJV, Christ has become of no effect. I'm not a big, big fan of other translations, but when you have a situation like this, you can go up there and see that even the ones that are really off have not changed this fact. Like, man, even the people who want to twist it have still got this one nailed. No matter which one you look at, it's telling you if you think you're going to keep the law of Moses, there's bad news for you. Similar warnings are given by Jesus himself to his apostle. He talks about those who do not bear fruit. John 15, 1-6, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth it, he purgeth it, that it may bring, more, may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the words which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye accept it. ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches, he that abideth in me, and I in him. The same bringeth forth, bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. They did a lot of gardening and shepherding, so there's a lot of them examples in here, but the example is clear. A branch, whether it be off a vine or a tree, will not survive if it doesn't stay connected to the main trunk. There's no nutrients coming through. So you wither away, and what do we do to sticks when they dry up? We use them in our fires. And in the spiritual sense, it won't be a fire to cook some food on. It'll be a fire that never goes out, a stick that never burns up. Jesus goes on at the end of our Bible to talk to those who have lost their first love, Revelation 2, 4, and 5. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlesticks out of his place, except thou repent. 
Okay, you've fallen away, but you're not dead yet. Straighten up, get your act together, and come back to Christ before your candlestick gets removed. He does, in the next chapter, talks to those who are lukewarm, those who kind of muddle through their Christianity, but they're not that serious about it. Revelation 3, 15 and 16, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodosians write these things, saith the, uh, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou work hot, cold or hot. Whenever I read that verse, I wish that they drank coffee back then, because we can all relate to that. People like iced coffee, and people like hot coffee. But when you had your coffee on your table too long, there's a, a spot somewhere in the middle. Nobody likes that spot. They either dump it over ice before it gets too cold and finish it, or chug it down, or they just dump it down the drain. It's either got to be hot to the level you like it, or cold to the level you like it. If you're drinking it in the middle just because you're desperate for caffeine, and you're washing it down with something else. And if our Christianity isn't in those good ranges, then it's no good. If you're too cold... Well, you've already lost it anyhow. If you're trying to muddle through lukewarm, half-buttoning on Sunday morning and forgetting it the rest of the week, you're in that, that temperature range where nobody drinks their coffee. And the Lord's going to spew you out of his mouth. You've got to be piping hot coffee that you've got to drink careful. That's what he's looking for. He likes it fresh out of the burner. He likes to catch it right from the drip before it gets in the pot. Nice and hot. So you've got to note carefully that both Jesus and Paul were addressing Christians here, and then think about how that applies to you. What temperature coffee are you when you're preparing yourself for the Lord? Are you hot, or have you let yourself go cold, or are you drifting through that mental range where you're not even going to get microwaved, you're just going out? You will fall from grace if you're not doing it the way the Lord intended. You who attempt to be justified by the law, or by any other means for that matter. Again, Paul's addressing Christians who felt that circumcision became a necessary part of their salvation, even though Christ doesn't teach that. But by the law, no one can actually be justified. Romans 3, verse 20, Therefore thy deeds, by thy deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. We still need the law because we can read it and we can know, okay, well apparently, even though I didn't think that was bad, now I've read it, I know that it was. And that's not because we're under the law, that's because of grace of Christ compels us to do better. So, their effects are destined for failure. If you try to justify yourself through the law or anything else but Christ, you have fallen but from grace. This is one of the clearest statements of the possibility of apostasy. Paul warns Christians, one cannot fall from something if they were never there. Those in a state of grace were in danger of falling from it. If there is no danger of apostasy, Paul's statement is meaningless. So if you've never become a Christian, it doesn't matter. But if you are a Christian, you don't want to let this happen. This is just one of many passages that warns of the danger of falling away. Jesus warned his disciples of being cut off. John 15, 1-6, I am the true vine. We just read that. You don't want to be cut off because you're a withering branch that isn't doing anything, because you're lukewarm, because you're just going through the motions. You want to make sure that you're giving it your all. Paul warned the Gentile Christians in Rome in Romans 11, 19-22, Thou wilt say then the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God separated not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare thee not. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God, on them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness. If thou continue in this goodness, otherwise thou shalt 
be cut off. And you think somebody who spent a long time serving God could get cut off, and you think you couldn't. Think again. And that's not because we have an evil God. That's because God told you very clearly, hey, I'm willing to dig you out of this problem that you're in, but I need you to do it my way. Uh, I don't know how biblical it would be, but I used to get the example when I was younger that God's allergic to sin. So he has to cut you off because he doesn't need the allergen to make him sick. And that's not necessarily a biblical concept, but the idea behind it kind of helps illustrate the idea that we need to do our part. The epistle to the Hebrews is filled with many warnings. And I've got a whole bunch of them, so I didn't even bother copying them in here. But Hebrews 2, 1. Hebrews 3, 12 through 15. Hebrews 4, 1. Hebrews 4, 11. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. Hebrews 12, 15, and there's more of them. And Peter also leaves many warnings all throughout 2 Peter. And those are two more books. If you haven't read them, you ought to take the time. They're a good read. The security of the believer is for those who remain faithful to Christ. Otherwise, they will not receive their inheritance. It's not one and done. Well, I got baptized back in 1983, and that guy said, once saved, always saved, so I don't got to go to church or be a good person or anything else. No, my Bible says, remain thou faithful till death. How terrible are the consequences of trusting the law of Moses for salvation? And you can fill that blank in with anything. How terrible is the consequences of finding your way to salvation through anything other than Jesus Christ himself? The fact is, if you're not going to Christ through Christ, then Christ will be of no profit to you. If you're trying to do it through the law, you're indebted to a law that can never save you. And because you've chosen another way, you've severed yourself from Christ. You've fallen from grace. These are all consequences you don't want to have be a part of your end game when you leave this life. Christians may not be tempted to trust in the law of Moses today, but we still need to take care because there are many other things that can drag us away from the law of Christ. Anything from false religion to our sin of choice can drag us away from Christ. Otherwise, the consequences will be the same. No matter what it is that drags you away from Christ, it drags you away from Christ. The biblical definition of idolatry isn't some stone or wooden image that you carve that you pray to. It's anything that comes between you and your Lord. So it can be a habit. It can be another human being. It could be an idol. It could be anything that comes between you and Jesus. How much better is it to take the idea of remaining faithful to Jesus Christ and enjoy? I remember one Bible debate I was in, and the person just kept trying to twist everything, and I finally said, okay, well, let's analyze the very end game of this. What happens if a Christian is wrong and there's nothing in the afterlife? You stay out of jail, unless they start arresting Christians. Uh, you tend to do better at work because you're more dedicated. <coughs> Your life just goes smoother. As opposed to if you're not a Christian, sure, a lot of them have good lives too, but your odds go down quite a bit. So if Christians are wrong, what do you lose? A couple parties? But if you don't believe in Christ and you're wrong, what do you lose? And believe it or not, in that debate, that was what tipped the guy over the edge. He didn't like the fact that he didn't have a good answer for that. So at the end of the day, you got to trust in Christ and absolutely nothing else. You can't trust in yourself or any law or any religion or any other group or doctrine that comes along. Otherwise, the consequences will be the same as trusting the law of Moses. The blessings of salvation and sanctification that Jesus offers are only there if you give them through Christ. The law, a law whose commandments are not burdensome. You go through the commands of being a Christian, they're really not that bad compared to almost any religion out there, unless your religion is do whatever you want and go to hell. Christ has commands like, follow me, live a better life, believe and be baptized. 
the law of Moses has commands like slaughter animals every week because you're a bad person. You have other religions that say to beat yourself. You have other religions that say don't eat for six months to punish yourself because you're horrible. And all kinds of things above and below that. But the Christian religion says come follow me. Be a good person. Care about those around you. Try to help other people find their way here so that your family and loved ones don't have to go to hell. Things that we can actually accomplish if we choose to. Union with Christ, with the life and strength such communion offers. There are things that you will have the strength to do and the good heart and the good sight to do with Christ that you would never accomplish on your own. Like the one, I, I don't know if it's an acronym, but the thing where people say, without Christ, I am, I am nothing. And when you really truly find yourself with Christ and compare it to your life after, or if you slip and think about how it was with Christ, it really is the truth. You need to be standing in the grace of God, as Paul wrote in our key verses in Romans 5, 1 and 2 today. And on a daily basis, you need to ask yourself, are you placing your trust in Jesus Christ by hating his gospel, his words, and his apostles? Because it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for one day, one year, or an entire lifetime, you're nearing the end. Every day you've got to ask that because you can be a Christian for 80 years and you're 95 or 105 and... You drift away and it's you because you forget all about Christ before the end. I'm not talking about something like Alzheimer's, that's out of your control. But if you just simply choose not to follow anymore, no matter how long or short your Christianity has been, you put yourself right in the category of the Jews who followed the law of Moses as a part of their Christianity. As Christians, we gather together, have a good time and sing and listen to me run my mouth, but we also take the opportunity for the invitation, and that's what we're going to do now. If you're not a Christian, you're either too young to know the difference or you're choosing to go to hell because Christ is not important. Don't do that. If you understand the gospel of Christ, you need to respond to it because it's the only way to be justified. If you're a Christian, it doesn't matter what need you have, your family's here for you. Feel free to respond also as we all stand and sing.